welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, it's Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. Did anyone go to churches where the kids came in with like waving palm branches and everything like that? I think maybe we should bring that back. Yeah, do you guys think so? Okay. Well, I'll work on that for next year. I'll work on that for next year. We'll see if we can put that together. Little kids running with palm branches and everything. It's not Palm Sunday without the kids waving branches, Micah. Mark chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, open them. We're in a season of Lent, a journey towards the resurrection, uh, not before the crucifixion of Jesus. If you know the story, uh, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem this week on Palm Sunday, Uh, uh, anticipating the celebration of Passover, which is one of, if not the largest celebration in Jewish life in a year. And so uh, scholars believe that upwards of 60,000, maybe 100,000 people uh, sort of convene on this little small city on top of a hill called Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So the town is bustling, people are excited, and Jesus enters the city uh, this, uh, this Sunday, on Palm Sunday. And so we are, uh, we've been in Mark, and we've learned a lot of things from Mark, uh, at least a couple I'll just note. One being that Mark is in two sections, chapters 1 to 8, and then chapters 9 to 16. This question of who is Jesus and by what authority is he doing these things is discussed in the first half. The second half is really all about how do we live this out, or what does it mean to follow this Jesus all the way to the cross and resurrection and through? Uh, what does that look like? And so Mark often will take material, this story that he's trying to tell, and he'll He'll make a sandwich out of it. So this, is, this Sunday we get a classic Mark sandwich. We've seen a number of these where it starts with a story, and then there's something in the middle, and then another story that sounded a lot like the first story but actually speaks to the one in the center. Tracking? Following? This is how he does it. So stand, if you will. This is uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table of the home, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Jesus Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Pray with me, if you will. God, as we gather this morning in this place, uh, we do so for lots of different reasons. Uh, For many of us, this is a part of our life, a weekly rhythm that we have of gathering with your people and hearing from your word and singing and being together as a community of uh, people called out to do something in the world. I pray maybe, maybe most of all today, God, that you would um, make things that are familiar to us become unfamiliar. Would you sort of crack the seeds? Would you uh, break open the hardness of heart if there be any, God? Uh, would you peel back our, uh, the scales on our eyes that keep us from seeing you for who you are 
So make what's familiar unfamiliar. God, visit us in a unique way today, I pray, in the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I have three things I want to highlight this morning in this passage as we make our way towards communion. Uh, We make our way towards this table, which is so familiar, this place where Jesus invites us to come and eat this bread and drink of this cup. So three thoughts. Uh, The first, I would maybe say it this way. Jesus is at home with the leper. He's at home with Simon the leper. Look at verse 3. It says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Now, a lot of things have just been said that we maybe miss or gloss over as 21st century readers. Um, First of all, in the ancient Near East, if you're invited into somebody's home, this is a big deal. You don't, it's sort of like the inside of in, and if you eat with somebody, there's a a lot that's being said. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? The, The crazy part about that story was not that was that Jesus actually went to the home and ate with this tax collector, this sort of hated person among Jews. So when you're invited into somebody's home and then you go and you sit at that table, it's saying a lot about the kind of relationship or, or uh, at least the person's disposition towards the person who's hosting. So Jesus is found at the home of Simon the leper. Now, if you know anything about leprosy, uh, you know that it's not a pretty deal. I, would, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you're interested, like look that one up on the Googles. Mercy me. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky deal. Uh, we'll call it a skin disease. How about that, right? And if you know anything about the Bible in the Old Testament, there are a whole bunch of laws in the book of Leviticus that would uh, allow somebody to be clean or unclean, right? And if you're going to worship at the temple and you're going to do this thing, then you have to be clean. Jesus is found in the home of a guy who's totally unclean. Have you ever seen any uh, paintings or, or portraitures of like the Last Supper? So the way that they would eat would be around like a small table, a real low table, and you'd literally like lay down and you'd be reclining almost in the lap of the person on, the, on, on your right hand, which is why to sit at the right hand of somebody is a big deal, because then you're literally like hosting them. What does it mean to say that Jesus is found in the home of the leper? Not only in the home of the leper, but he seems to be completely comfortable in the home of this guy. He's not just putting up with this guy, but he's actually like hanging with him. He's chilling with this guy. He's kicking it old school style with Simon the leper. This is a trip. This is a real trip. Um, Jesus, remember where we are in this story, right? Wise is the person who knows where you are or knows what time it is in the scripture. We are right in the midst of Passover week. It's heading up to Passover. So if you're Jesus, a good first century Jewish teacher, who's heading to temple to celebrate Passover with the entirety of of your people, the last place that you would want to be is in this guy's house. Because he makes you immediately unclean, which means that you can't go to temple and you can't worship with the people. Now, we don't really know if Simon, uh, who this guy was. Some people argue that it's sort of a nickname that he kind of kept, you know, he was, he had leprosy and then he, he, he was healed from it. You know, like, uh, did you guys have nicknames for kids in fifth grade, sixth grade? You know, like Simon the leper, you know, that guy down at the end of the lunch table. So we're not sure if he's healed and this is just a name that stuck with him or if he actually has leprosy. I tend to believe that this guy actually has leprosy. 
Because Mark makes a big deal about healings. He's always talking about them, and he's mentioning them. He's saying, listen, this person was healed of this, and this person was healed of that. If this guy had been healed, I think it would be Simon, the guy who had leprosy, healed by Jesus. But no, he, it just says Simon the leper. I think this guy had leprosy, and Jesus is found in the home of Simon the leper. Why do I say all that? I think it's fair to say that we find Jesus and God in the scriptures outside of the circles that we think he should be operating in. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. We walk into a room and we sort of, we measure people up. We sort of, we take stock of the room and who's where and where am I compared to everybody else. And we create these circles of who's in and who's out whether it be at work or in our family or in our schools or any number of places. Who's in, who's out. It's so fascinating to me that again and again and again in the scriptures, we find God in the Old Testament, I could argue it, in the New Testament we find Jesus, and then in the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles we find the Spirit out in front of, ahead of, outside of the circles that all the religious people would say this is where God should be. Now, you all should be thinking to yourselves, hmm, what does that mean for us, religious people in the 21st century? I assume there's some sense of religion in the room. Maybe you wouldn't be here if there wasn't. But I think it's fair to say that we find God, Jesus, the Spirit, out ahead of, outside of the circles in which we think God ought to work or should be working, which is a good reminder for us to hold with an open hand the things that we believe about God. I read this book in college. The title of it was The Myth of Certainty. None of you find that ironic or funny. This, religious folk who, who do church and this kind of thing, I feel like I was taught growing up that like, what we're after, the, the sort of golden calf, the, you know, everything that we're moving towards is certainty about the truth of God and the Bible. And, right? Like What is true and what's certain, and then I'm going to anchor my life to it. Which, if you just stop and back up for a second from that whole system, it's actually not possible for you and I, subjective people, to have an objective view of truth. Like, we can't actually do it. Everything we believe is from a perspective. Everything we see, everything we say is true, comes through our grid and our filter. Now, we could have a whole sermon series on this, and I don't want to do that today. But what, I'm, what I do want to point out this morning is this. Can we hold loosely the things that we believe about God? Because I pray, dear Jesus, that the things that I think are true about God now would grow. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. You aren't the same person that you were yesterday. We're becoming, and, and hopefully, we're getting a bigger glimpse of who God is and what God is up to in the world. And hopefully, there are things that you believed about God that you don't, you don't believe anymore because you've gotten more. Yes? So can we hold loosely our beliefs about God, not with any less conviction, but to hold them loosely to say, maybe, maybe it's possible that we would find God working outside of the places where we think God ought to be working, or God moving or inviting us into a place like the home of Simon the leper the week before Passover. You see what I'm saying here? So here we find Jesus at home with this guy on the outside of in, an outcast in culture in society. And Jesus is kicking it with him. I love it. I think you could also say, or notice, that there's a contrast that Mark draws that is really quite stunning with this sandwich thing that he does. 
So there's two stories, or there's three stories. There's two of them at the end here and one of them in the middle. And the meat of the sandwich, Mark, sort of uh, is really the focus of what's going on here. It starts with a story about the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, if you, if you, if you pay attention to scripture or you even have any sense of like uh, an ancient patriarchal culture, you would know that there's no chance, not a snowball's chance and you know where, that any of these people would be women. These are all men, chief priests, teachers of the law, the religious leaders of Israel, right? So the, the, the sandwich begins with a story about these guys who cannot see what's right in front of them. They don't see or understand who this Jesus is or what he's up to and what he's doing. Then it ends with a story about Simon Iscariot, who of any people should know, should be able to see. He's really close to Jesus. He's one of the 12. Only closer would be Peter, James, and John. And then right in the middle is a story about a woman who sees absolutely clearly who Jesus is and what he's up to and what he's doing. So you have these men who don't understand, you have these women who get, or this woman who gets it, and then a guy who doesn't get it again. That's par for the course, right? <laughs> a question that comes up again and again in the scriptures is, can you see what's right in front of you? Can you see as God sees? God is the first person who sees in the scripture, and God saw that it was good. God saw the light in day one and drew it out of the darkness, Hagar says, you are the God who sees me in Genesis 16 when she flees from her maidservant. Jacob is standing in front of his father who doesn't see him. Jacob has a wife that he marries and is with and then wakes up the next day and says, who are you? I thought I was getting the other one. Which, can we stop for a second and just say, I'm so glad that's not in the kids' curriculum. That's crazy town. Like crazy, really crazy. Either way, he doesn't see her. She's right in front of him. Can you see What's right in front of you for what it is, can you see as God sees? An invitation for the scripture, that the scriptures offer over and over and over again. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, this is the same pattern with the guys who don't get it and the woman who gets it and the guys who don't get it as the widow who brings their mites to the temple. Not mites like crawling things, but money. The widow's mite, she offers it at the temple. And on either side of her are these men who just do not get what's happening. It's so fascinating to me, so fascinating, especially when you think about the church and our response to women for centuries and centuries. So I don't know that I've ever done this before, and I'm fitting to go there, so if I may, just for a moment. Um, a couple months ago, uh, maybe six months ago, I decided to go to this, uh, it's called the Urban Retreat Center. It's this lovely little place north of the cities, you don't even have to drive very far, and there's this little house in the back, this little back house, the potter's house, they call it. And uh, I go there once a month, the last Thursday of every month, and I just, I sit there. That's all I do. I, I make coffee, I turn off my phone, turn off my computer, and I just listen. So I'm there the first time, and if you're, I mean, if you're anything like me, extroverts in the room who just need, to, need people, yeah, okay, this is a little scary for us, right? So I go there, and I'm like, okay, God, let's do this. What do you got for me? Didn't hear much. Um, so I go outside, because uh, I'm doing something, and they have a labyrinth. Have you ever been on a prayer labyrinth before? These little, these little, uh, it's a little, it's kind of like a little, um, 
uh, oh boy, how would I say it? It's not a maze. It's not supposed to be a maze. It's not a trick. It's just a, a, an experience that you it's sort of let go and like let the labyrinth lead you, and it takes you to the center. And so while you're doing that, you kind of let things go, and you drop things along the way. And hopefully, as you clear your head and your heart, you can hear what God might be saying more. So these are prayer labyrinths. They're all over the world. People have been doing this for centuries. So I decide I'm going to go on this labyrinth, right? So I go out there, and I'm like, all right, labyrinth time. Let's do this, baby. So there are rocks that are like laid in the ground, and I'm looking around, I'm like, okay, let's start here. So rocks are here, follow it, and go into the labyrinth. I walk in, and all of a sudden, I get to a dead end. I'm like, oh, geez, this labyrinth sucks. Like, What's going on here? It's not supposed to be a trick. So I go back out, and I'm thinking, it's got to be that I started in the wrong place. So then I find a different spot to enter the labyrinth. I walk between the rocks, and I keep going, I keep going, and sure enough, I get to a dead end again. And by this time, friends, I'm getting hot. Like, I'm thinking to myself, who's the knucklehead who built this labyrinth? This is not supposed to be a maze. It's not supposed to be a trick. And it's doing everything that it's not supposed to be doing in my spirit. Because I am flipping out. So I go one more time, right? I go in. I, I try to find the thing. Sure enough, I come to a dead end again. And I am, I literally, like, I swear out loud. I'm like, what kind of a labyrinth is this? And then it dawns on me. Walk on the rocks, not between the rocks. I said to Christine, I'm like, you might want to put in your labyrinth material, walk on the rocks, not between the rocks. It would be helpful to some people. So I enter the labyrinth again for my Canadian friends, the process. And I start on the rocks, and it's fall. And so there's leaves all covering the labyrinth. And I start, and I, I take one step, and I, I clear the, the rock in front of me. And then I do it again, and I just, like, very intentionally, I'm clearing all these leaves off the rocks. And I'm a little ADD in some ways, and so literally, like, no leaves could be touching the edges of the rocks. They had to be totally clear. So this is taking me a while. You know, I'm doing this. I'm busying myself with the clearing of the rocks, and then, all of a sudden, like a lightning bolt. For me, when I hear God, it's like electricity. Like, zap, there it is. And I hear something that is not my voice at all. And what I heard was, what if your life was about clearing path for people? What if the invitation of your life, the work of your hands, was about clearing a path for people? And the first faces that I saw were my kids, my three daughters. I thought, what would it be like for a dad to clear the path for these women as they grow up? And then I saw you in this church. And I thought, what would it be like for me as a pastor to clear a path for people for whom the path has been blocked? And so can I just say a couple things this morning? On behalf of all of those who have stood in this place and represented God to people over the years and who have missed this one, who maybe have not done a good job on this topic of women and your voices and your gifts and your value, can I just ask like a collective forgiveness on behalf of people who have stood here? For those of you who have ever felt belittled or demeaned or whose voices were quieted or gifts were not celebrated, I'm so sorry. And I wish it weren't the case. Because I find in the scriptures a story that actually highlights women and puts them right in the center, seeing something clearly that all the people around them don't see. For crying out loud, the first witness of the resurrection is a woman who's a prostitute. Not a good story if you're trying to convince everybody. 
Not a good first witness. Like the worst you could possibly pick. And I just think, and I know this is a nuanced conversation, and I know that there's scripture that says things that you have to understand, and you gotta, you got to do the work, and you have to come to some conclusion on it. But I just believe with all of my heart that if on this particular topic, I, I will lead this community to be a place that makes a path and clears the path. And so if that's you this morning and you've ever felt that, then, then this, we're trying to do something different. And we're not the only ones out there. There's nothing special about it. But I just want to say that out loud to you if you've ever felt that. Because I have three daughters. They're 12, 9, and 7. And they're going to grow up in this community. And they're going to they're try to figure out who God is and what God is like and what God thinks about them and feels about them. And they're going to find things that have been planted deep, deep inside of them. And unfortunately, in some cases, those things get squashed, but not here. Amen? Amen and amen. Come on now. <sighs> Take off my jacket. I'm hot. <laughs> Last thought as we move towards communion this morning. What does it mean to prepare something for burial? What does it mean to prepare something to die? It's so interesting in the scriptures that this is a, uh, this is a woman who seems to know something that everybody else is missing in this moment. And that Jesus' life is headed towards death, and she sees it, and so she's preparing him for this journey. And so often in Scripture, a journey towards death doesn't end in death. And so we've been on this Lenten journey, beginning at Ash Wednesday, moving towards Easter Sunday, where we're reminded of our finality, of our fragility, of our temporary nature. The Scripture says we're like a breath, a mist, a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. And so there's this intentionality around remembering that it's from ashes we've come and ashes we will return. And this idea, this invitation in Lent to consider what is it that might be dying or what, might be, what God might be inviting me to bury so that something else might be born in its wake. So maybe it's a habit, maybe it's an addiction that you have, maybe it's some way of responding to a spouse or a coworker. this something that needs to die in you. Maybe it's a voice of doubt that you felt or heard, just that, that little voice of doubt. Maybe, it even, maybe you heard it today when Sinead's like, you should run a marathon. No way, I can't do that. Maybe there's some voice that you're hearing that's not allowing you or crippling you from stepping out in faith. Maybe that needs to die. Maybe it's a voice, from, a voice or a wound from your past that just keeps hanging on. Maybe it's even something that served you well in the past but is no longer serving you in the present and into the future. Sometimes good things have to die. Maybe it was a coping mechanism that you needed to survive but that no longer serves you as an adult. Is it possible that the journey towards death and the preparation necessary is a sacred journey? That you and I might be invited on this Lent as we move towards Resurrection Sunday. What might it be that God's inviting you to prepare for burial? That's the question I want to ask that I want you to think about this morning so that something else could be born in its wake. Now, I gotta be honest, friends. I drove up to church this morning. I literally got to the parking lot and I turned in and I realized, oh my gosh, there's no screen today. There's no playlist. There's no lyrics for anybody. <laughs> like seven in the morning, we had nothing. <laughs> That's not a good thing when you're, when you're getting ready for a Sunday. 
So we cranked those things out. And I, last night I was up, I was taking pictures of, of these, this, this journey in my journal that I wanted to show you all. Uh, and I realized as I was driving in, oh man, like my sermon, that's like the best part. I took, I took like three different shots, got it right under the right light in my kitchen. So I put those on Facebook, okay, friends? So there's three photos. If you want to see them, I'm going to tell this story. Because sometimes we talk about things, and maybe for you, I don't know if you're anything like me, it can feel a little like idealistic or esoteric or kind of out there. Like, what does it mean to prepare something for burial? That's a great question, but what the heck does that even mean? If you're anything like that, I want to just give you an example of what this looked like in my life. Uh, And those pictures are on space page if you want to see them. Um, But... 2013, I was invited to go to Israel with some friends, and so we went. And I was sort of on the brink of uh, some things in my own heart and in my own head related to my relationship with my dad. Uh, There are a lot of things that came from that relationship, a lot of happy memories, a lot of good things, but also a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of scars. And I had developed this sort of uh, hardened bitterness and anger that was just kind of like a subsurface, like in the system tray of my operating system for all you tech nerds out there. It just like was always playing. It was, it was the background music of my life, right? This sort of low-grade anger and resentment that I felt. Because quite frankly, I was mad. I was really mad because I felt like I deserved something that I didn't get. And I watched other people get it, and I was like, oh man, I'm so glad that you have like a man in your life who affirms you and like calls out your name. That's just great. That's what I did when I left. And it just bugged me, and I was like, I think I was worth that, and I didn't get it. And it just, I was really, really upset. And so I go on this trip to Israel, and I, I felt, if you've ever felt like maybe you're being invited to do something, or this like still small voice, like, hey, you should run a marathon, that kind of thing. So like, I'm, I'm in Israel, and I feel like there's work to be done on this topic. And we're sitting around at the Sea of Galilee, you know, like you do, Drinking wine, feet, you know, in a little reclining chair, my feet dangling in the Sea of Galilee. And we start talking about this, and somebody's like, well, hey, Micah, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe God wants to father you? Which is like the worst thing to say to somebody in my state. Because I'm like, you know what? That is so easy for you to say. I think I swore at this poor, this poor lady. I was really upset. And like in that moment, my heart just cracked open a little bit. And the spirit began to work in my heart over the course of that week. And so these pictures show like a progression in my journal where I I wrote like, we were in a study and the question, one of the questions was what do you want? You know, this question that Jesus asked the blind guy, what do you want? Do you want me to heal you? Do you want to be healed? I I felt like God asked me, what do you want? So I wrote some things down. I want to be, I want a name. I want you to speak a blessing over me like a father takes his son's forehead and just blesses him. I want that. And I finally got to the end of this week and I wrote in my journal, I think I might be done being angry about my dad. And I think I may have something to offer as I ascend the hill of the Lord we were going to Jerusalem that day. And I felt like God was inviting me to prepare something to die so that something else could grow in its wake. And I wonder if there isn't anything that you might sense or feel invited to prepare for burial like this woman who recognizes Jesus. She says yes to the invitation to get involved, to participate in the story, to do something beautiful and prepare this Jesus for burial so that resurrection might come. What would that look like for you? I'm gonna offer a word of prayer 
and I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to move towards communion and a time of silence. And so I'll offer a word of prayer and then lead you into a time of silence and then explain uh, just how communion will go. So pray with me if you would. God, this morning as we uh, sit and we think and study uh, this story and we hear it, I'm thankful that your word is alive, that you spoke and revealed yourself in and through this event and then the, the retelling of this event and now today as we consider what it looks like for us to prepare something to die. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and real, help us to see you for who you are, remove, remove the blinders and the, the hardness of our hearts so that we might hear your voice and the still, small voice and work of the Spirit might flow into the cracks of our own lives. So God, as we take a moment of silence, would you, Holy Spirit, invite us, speak to us, show us what it is that we might need to prepare uh, to die so that something else might be born. God, we thank you for your word, for your presence. Would you continue to speak? Invite us to be who you've made us to be, I pray. As we move towards uh, the table in communion, uh, we've prepared our hearts and um, spent some time thinking in quiet, and I want to invite us to pray together. Uh, a prayer that our brothers and sisters in Christ have prayed for thousands of years that Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, I forgot to print it in your bulletins, but if you know it, uh, it's the Lord's Prayer. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. A Holy Week prayer by Walter Brueggemann. The cadences of suffering love sound in the church in this Holy Week. Ponder this coming Thursday and this ready Friday. Eating solemnly and transformatively in the foreground is this. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, healed by his stripes. We ponder how much self-giving could heal our lives. And we cannot do better than arrest ourselves in that awesome mystery. All the while we occupy the killing fields. Those fields always filled with Amalekites, their Amalekites, our Amalekites, always Amalekites to be cleansed. And we imagine as do they, that somehow the killing matches our noblest, most pious convictions. But you are the one who is spared. You have pity. You have drawn the violence short in order to save. Hold your church all this week to the unbearable mystery of your self-giving and to the intolerable burden of our killing. Move us from the grip of that deathly squeeze. Move by your innocence. Move by your weakness. Move by your passion. Deliver us from our Amalekite-shaped world. In the name 
of the bruised one. Amen. Receive this benediction. I asked my friend Alan uh, if you translated it literally uh, in Hebrew to English, the Aaronic blessing from Numbers. And this is, Alan often says this over us, and so I will say it over you. The Lord bless you and guard you. The light of God's face on you and grace you. God's face lifted up to your face and put upon you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace. Love you guys. Run a marathon. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.